But mm. alcohol has always been my undoing. Mm. We, I was on the Soberton, and it was and it was probably the last charge I got in the Navy. Um, and it was a little minesweeper, and we were due to sail on my birthday. And I didn't tell everybody it was my birthday mm. until we were due to sail, because I didn't want to go out the night before, drink a load of ale, feel ill, and then go see in a storm. It was my birthday, so I, uh, I said, right, what we do for, when we get well away for my breakfast, can I have an extra egg scene? It's my birthday. And it was your birthday. And I said, yeah. Why don't you tell us yesterday I could have a few beers? I said, oh, because we're sailing. And then we heard this, boom. <laughs> and so, a piece of lagging blew out of the funnel. And the skipper said, right, we're not sailing. We're not sailing until tomorrow. So we get this lagging fixed. And they all went, hey, we'll take us out for a beer. <laughs> That's what they did. They took me ashore. So they, I, I, I drank way, way, way too much beer. <laughs> To the point where I couldn't really see. And the whole ship's company, bar the skipper and the duty crew, were drinking with me in a place called Inverkeeling in Scotland. And um, and I had three pints in front of me. And somebody said, it's your round, Boz, and you need to start shifting these beers. So I said, I can't drink any more beer. I'll have them. Um, and I just looked up, and all I could see in front of me was Perno. I said, I'll have a Perno. So I tapped a Perno. And I drank it. I thought, oh, that's awful. Drank half a pint. And the lad next to me said, get him another perno. We'll soon shift this beer. So they got me another perno, chatting away. <laughs> went, ah! So within about 30, 35 minutes, I drank three pints and about 12 pernos. Can we, can we do something to sweeten the perno up? And the barman said, put lemonade in it. So my, my, my drinks then were double perno and lemonades. I had another 15, I think. I think somebody counted 27 pernos. Oh. <laughs> and that's when I stopped breathing. And they were trying to get me back on board. And it was officers' rounds. So they come round the, the dockyard. It's only yeah. the evening. And um, I was not going down below. And when they tried to get me down the ladder, I was holding onto a stanchion and fighting people. Dude, I'm not going down there. It felt like to me that there were flames coming out of the ship. Oh, really? Out of the hatch. And I thought, if I go down there, I'm going to die. Hmm. Whatever that subconscious was, was telling me not to go down there. And it's while they were grappling with me that I stopped breathing. And so they got an ambulance and they gave me oxygen, CPR, oxygen, into sick bait. And then when they realised, somebody said he's drank a lot of alcohol, they stomach pumped me. And then at some point in the night, I think round about midnight, they, they said I was fit enough to spend the rest of the night in cells. So I was in the cells. And then um, the master of arms came in, who was like a chief chief of police in the naval dockyard and he came in and he said um i've spoke to your skipper and your uh your regulating officer on the the ship and they tell me that you're a good lad so if you can mop up this cell i'm gonna let you go without a charge i said oh thank you sir and threw up all over his trousers <laughs> um, he punched me um and then i and then they threw a mop in and then a bucket of water and i had to mop the cell and clean it all up before they let me go and um I couldn't really, I was, I was struggling to stand up, but um, they, they got me to the, where like the, the jetty was for Minesweeper Alley, so there's Minesweepers out of sight, and ours was at the end. And uh, people were people were stopping work, because I was slung between two, the call crushers, leading regulators. And I, I did, I ham it up a bit. I actually just let me beat my boots drag, so they had to drag me along the jetty. Was,
Hi there, everyone. Welcome to the World of Momos podcast. And on this episode of Reflections and Reactions, we have Moss Perkins with us. And Moss uh, has served in the Royal Navy for six years. Uh, he has also written uh, a three-part uh, autobiography of his time in, in the Royal Navy. It's a story, a true story of life um, in Greater Manchester through the 60s and 70s that pushed a boy to become a man in the Royal Navy. It's called Born in Stockport, Grew Up in the Royal Navy. Moss Perkins is also a secretary of Stockport Armed Forces Committee Organization, uh, chairman of Royal Naval Association uh, of the Stockport branch, ambassador for Project Recce, which is a charity that helps uh, serving personnel transition into construction roles. So today we are going to talk about um, basically the life in Royal Navy and how people transition into that life or how people get into that life and what has changed over time, you know, um, so far from the previous generation to the newer generation. So hi there, Mars. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Momus. How are you? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not bad. Thank you very much. I, I still have a bit of cold, but I'm fighting it off. It's uh, <laughs> it's definitely a winter of bugs this year. Yeah, <laughs> lots of things. Yeah, it does seem like that, doesn't it? So, your six. Before we start about your six years in the Royal Navy, what made you, you know, choose the Royal Navy? Why Royal Navy? Good question. So when I when I was a child growing up, um, national service was still prevalent, and most of my family had served in the forces, and they had either served during the war, Second World War, or they were doing national service, mm. uh, and I was brought up on their tale. So they would tell me funny stories, and I just thought it was really exciting. Um, and I think the 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 crux moment was my dad and my uncle took me and my brother to the Earl's Court to see the Royal Tournament. And the Royal Tournament was just this live flashbang, lots and lots of different um, things going on that were delivered by the military. And it just, it just blew me away. So I think from the age of about seven, I was always going to go in the forces. Yeah. I cadets, didn't particularly like it, thought it was a bit too much, uh, too stiff for me. And same mm. as the air cadets. And I joined the sea cadets because they had a band and I used to play a drum in the band and it was great fun. We went to band competitions all over the north of England. Like because there there is a huge difference between the navy and the rest of the uh, armed forces, and I don't know. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. I think so. It's because you you put on a ship, right, and you are disconnected from the rest of the world. Like you're an island of your own. So there's a different sort of camaraderie over there. So within the even within the peacetime you have that element of the wartime because you're constantly in danger in the sea and you have to depend on your, um, you know, on your colleagues and stuff. But the within other parts of the armed forces, they're training and it doesn't give the same feeling. Is that something I'm hitting the mark or? So, so, sort of. I think it, my, my, my colleagues who served in the army and the air force would argue um, and they used to go on exercises. And of course, most of my army friends have served in in theatres of war, mm. in real theatres of war, mm. and I haven't. So I think they would argue quite differently in that case. But yeah. your point about being locked away, be on a ship, you're mm. in a you're in a box, which is a series connected to a series of boxes, yeah. and different people live in those boxes, work in those boxes, and 
and a ship's a fighting platform at the end of the day. It's there to mm. to, to carry aircraft or carry missiles or large calibre uh, weapons to, to to take to the enemy, whoever that enemy is. And um, there's no time off. Even when you're off duty, you can't go ashore. You can't go for a drink. You can't go to the cafe for a cup of tea. You're, you're still on the ship. Yeah. Through the sea. Yeah. You get, you, then you get alongside. Well, you five or six weeks at sea, and then you get alongside. It gets a bit mental. So people tend to go ashore, drink lots of beer, fall over, and mm. do things, which I write about in my books. But yeah, um, I, that wasn't. I wasn't expecting that, and I think mm. psychologically, there's quite a quite a change comes over you when you're you're part of a team on a on a ship, and you you have to get on with each other. Not everyone does. Yeah. Um, and 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 tensions arise uh, and, and and frictions caused by the close proximity of other people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, do you think? Do you think it's the same now? Uh, like, obviously, it won't be the same now as it was before. And I've also seen like over time we have reduced the naval personnel's. Um, you know, we, we used to, like Britain used to rule the waves, right? So the Navy is supposed to be the most important, but it seems like it's, it seems to be lagging behind or something. Oh, all, all three armed forces mm. have had serious reductions yeah. since I served. Mm. And the, in the 1970s, it was already reducing because yeah. lots of different factors. So some of those factors were... Um, the, the, the British Empire became the Commonwealth and mm. lots, lots of countries took independence, which is, which is the right thing to do. Mm. And there wasn't a need to protect um, places all around the world. And that, that, that was a, a reducing mm. role for all the armed forces. And so during the 60s, 70s and 80s, lots of bases were closed. Lots of uh, naval um, dockyards were closed. Mm. And now we we we're, we we seem to be at the kind of bare minimum, and um, and there are certain things, certain roles that the navy can still undertake, but perhaps not as many as they could undertake forty years. Yeah, but so like even in in your time, right? Your time and before your time, people could get away with a lot of things that they can't get away now, right? Especially like probably the people in the navy. So that must have changed for the newcomers right now because they have to be more careful since you know there's more eyes now on people yeah i i agree i mean there's cameras everywhere for one thing but mm. I think the 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 navy is a different navy insofar as it's far more technical so mm. the role that i undertook has been phased out and and some of some of the guys and girls i serve with their roles no longer exist so i think today's navy is mm. far more specialised in terms of its technical ability and its technical capability. Mm. And ratings that are serving today are definitely, um, not to say more switched on or less switched on, but they carry out much more technical roles. Mm. And I think that's the single biggest difference. And ships these days have got, rely on computers uh, far uh, to, to, to a great degree, which is far from our time. There were no real computers. It was quite limited in the 1970s and there's lots of mechanical devices yeah so you had functions that their sole role was to was to maintain the mechanical devices and, and in mm. our case it was deliver communications across some kit that was quite uh, quite clever in its day but it's yeah. just 
so old now it's just, it doesn't 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 bear any any real relation and today with satellite comms and satellite navigation systems and everything else yeah aircraft can move around the world and and need less manual intervention than they used to do because in my time it just seemed to be quite heavy on manual intervention in everything we did but if you think about it people like even way 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 before when when they were on like ships with sails and in the navy but that must have been even a different like sort of a world like they they would have specializations that we don't have anymore yeah that, that's very true um and, and and i suspect going forward that will that that, that rate of evolution will continue mm. um yeah but most def- definitely more technical, and, more I, technical. And, and i think the other thing as well is is at the time i joined up there were the the man management was very very different from what it is today and i think today mm. it's more there seems to be more professional respect and, and a narrower gap between officers and ratings that's my opinion yeah uh, whereas in the 70s that gap was quite quite great and um and certainly there were people who looked down on on mm. ratings yeah, certain officers had no time, and yeah. um, and and I, that's something that I have not forgot. Mm. So, uh, from what you can see, what you're involved with, all the other things as well, um, is there still more of a desire for, <clears throat> especially for men, young men, to go on an adventure, to answer the call of adventure, and get on the navy, or is it becoming harder to recruit people? um in the royal navy i think judging by what i see on on social media and and i know through friends whose who children have joined the, mm. the navy is it, there, there is a, a shortage of of good quality personnel mm. in all levels of the organization and certainly it, it's been reasonably well publicized that some ships haven't sailed because they haven't got enough crew um and I think that's quite a sad state of affairs. However, if mm. you look at it from the other side and you look at it from a completely public view, all they see of um, armed forces personnel is people struggling with PTSD issues, people yeah. struggling with uh, pension issues, and 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 mental health is a, mm. it's a much broader subject and it's much wider understood today than it's ever been. And And I think for a long period of time, that wasn't the case. I'm I am involved in dealing with some individuals who you, we we try to get support for, and sometimes the support is there but has a big delay, and sometimes the support isn't there. So a young person looking in or looking looking in on us might suggest, why should I do that? Mm. <laughs> and it's to some people it's just a job. Um, for me, I, I was incredibly proud to joined the Royal Navy and yeah. and served my queen and country yeah. as a king today. Mm. And I felt very proud. I'm still immensely proud of what I did. Um, so this I, this must be it, right? Like like a major part of it is also the cultural change because I also think it, it, this is not a job. I mean, th- it takes special kind of people to answer the call to serve your king and your country, right? So it's a great honor to be like you know to be involved in this endeavor but there is a cultural change as far as i can see you know like <clears throat> it doesn't people don't see history in context 
you know, there's a lot of Britain bashing going on within Britain, which I really dislike. <clears throat> Sorry. And, um, you know, th that plays into people's mind because they don't understand the role of the armed forces and, and the sacrifices that they are making. And yes, you know, when you're involved in certain things, you have PTSD and stuff like that. <clears throat> but at the same time, like you, you're getting a lot more out of it. I mean, you, you can have PTSD doing anything. You could be involved in criminal gangs and, and be adversely affected in that. You could be in the police. You can be in the firearms. You can be anywhere you can have that. But it's okay. like, choose your adventure sort of a thing. I completely agree. And I think, and, and some, some people I'm, I, I know have uh, sadly uh, developed PTSD through uh, paramedics. Uh, and I know, I know two paramedics who, who've struggled with things that they've seen and they can't unsee. Yeah. And the, 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 the best counseling that they get really is you're never going to forget that. What you have to do is learn to deal with it better. And that, 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 that seems to be the crux of it. But what, what I'm saying is from the outside, young people may view the armed forces as being a really difficult role with yeah. too many risks. And, and and I think I thought I understood the risks when I joined up in 1974, yeah. but I don't think I really understood. And then you're immersed in this different world. Uh, I came out of training and went to um, Shore Establishment first. It was a shame, but that's that was just where, where it was. There were, in, in my time, there were quite a lot of um, staff and not as many ships. Mm. But I was on a grander scale. We had over 100 warships when I serve now today. I think there's 23 or something, 25 or something. And then you've got patrol boats and some other things. But in terms of ships that can deliver something, um, we, have, we have far less today than we ever used to do. Mm. Uh, but for me, I was dropped into this world and I, and I had to quickly understand what all the people's roles were. Mm. My first ship, my primary role was a communicator, so I was a radio operator. But my secondary role was was layer and loader for a 20 millimeter oil can gun, which I got to fire a couple of times when we were uh, in training. But that was my secondary role. And then the tertiary role was firefighting damage control. Mm. Um, and you, So you have to learn to keep the ship afloat. So damage control is really, really, really important. Now, that's the same today as it's ever been, even going mm. back to wooden hull warships. If, if there's a hole in the ship or a fire on the ship, mm. they're the worst things that can happen. And you have to train. We joke, used to joke about it. There was a fire every day on every ship because every day you do a live exercise. No way. And you prepare to run. You, well, you have to run hoses out, comms out, yeah. the lights out, and you have to deal with um, a fire, even though it's not a real fire. So mm. you practice, 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 practice. And so you're always on the alert and know that. And, and, and that, that was just... That was just ever present. So you didn't, that wasn't, you didn't think about that. You just yeah. knew what to do, uh, depending on what kind of duty you were on. Um, yeah, but well, it's it's a shame that, um, that people would think of people would, especially young men, would prefer safety over adventure. I mean, it's, it's a strange place that we're going into if we, if like in majority we start doing that because that weakens us as a society. Um, because there's risk in everything. There's risk, like you know, going outside and like getting hit by a bus. That doesn't matter. It's just, yeah, that 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 temerity, that sort of like inner steel and stuff. You know, I see that in society that we are 
the more comfortable that we are getting, the more things are being done for us by the government or by the system and stuff. We're taking, we are less and less inclined to take risks in life and we want safety and comfort over like actual adventure. And I think so that that itself, I, I would say, creates different kind of mental health issues, especially within men, because men, if they don't go for an adventure, if they don't choose an adventure in their life, whatever it might be, filled with purpose and stuff, they start losing their way really, really quickly. Sometimes um, and people fall into all sorts of situations because of it. I think mm. for me, I, I was I was a bit of a rascal before I joined the navy, so I was in trouble a few times, and I, yeah, and I, and I got I got arrested, and I was actually due in court the day I joined the navy. Uh, it was for ride, riding a motorbike with no license, with a pillion passenger, and having consumed alcohol. Yeah, uh, but that's the thing, like you know, like you were already adventurous, right? Yeah, but. And the Navy actually gave you a direction to and, and a way to channel your adventure properly. We see so many people that are so many men, uh, these uh, young boys and stuff who are wayward, they're committing crimes. And like, you know, they if they answer that call instead, but also we don't have that capacity anymore to have more armed personnel. But that was that used to be a way to bring these sort of people in and show them a better way. It did, and 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 the armed forces aren't geared up to that sort of thing anymore. Mm. It was a national service, which is a lot about um, <laughs> providing a defence for the country for one thing, but also yeah. um, uh, providing some di- some stiff direction for for young people. Mm. And in in my case, I got into trouble a lot. So when I joined when I joined the navy, it didn't stop me from doing stupid things, and I got locked up quite a few times. Um, I think my first. Up until 1977, I think I was, I had two two appearances in civilian courts. <laughs> a lot of actually lost count whether it was 10 or 12 or 15 on board offences, which is either fighting or drinking yeah. or doing something wrong. And um, and and that was me be, being a little bit directionless. And what you just mm. referred to before, and the Navy, I, 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 I caught, the Navy just went there. And I'd, you know, there, we need you to do this. And it can be a little bit claustrophobic. It can be difficult when you mm. like me. I'm quite a rebellious soul. Yeah. So it, what it did was it did give me direction. Mm. And I know, I know for a fact that if I hadn't joined the Royal Navy, if I hadn't gone through that mm. process, I mean, my, my mum and dad are wonderful. My mum's passed away now, but wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people with very, very, very strong family values. Mm. And I think that's another thing that kind of got me through my life is I've got very, very strong family values and Family to me is is my real kid and kin, my blood relatives, but also my friends and their families. So I take a I take quite a an all embracing view to looking mm-hmm. after my 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 family, um, yeah. and that in the in the Royal Navy when you've got other people and then you're living very very close to people, mm. you're, sleeping, you're literally sleeping next to someone with a thin sheet of metal in between you, yeah, um, or your toes are touching somebody's head or yeah. somebody's toes are touching your head, you reach up and I'm touching a bed. Yeah, and I'm touching a bit. So, when you live in that kind of compressed environment, you have to get on. Even though there there might be somebody in that mess who you don't like and doesn't yeah. like, you have to get on because. But it's you, like I, your brothers, isn't it? Because they they get more closer than your brothers because you know they're taking that risks with you. But 
it's like you have siblings you might not like them all the time but you have to love them you know that sort of thing you have to get along because they are siblings and you have to get over certain things and just you know forgive and forget and so, sort of a thing give and take yeah i mean it's so tell me like some sort of like your most favorite story the most trouble that you've got into or like uh first most most troublesome uh thing and then we'll go on to something that you're really proud of okay so mo- mo- most troublesome thing probably uh, and and maybe started me off on a bad foot on the ship was a was a a, a, a fight between sailors so there were six of us and four of them and it, uh, we'd been drinking all day i think they'd been drinking all day <laughs> We were we were walking in between um, a, a base and the dockyard, a short walk in in uh, Rosside, and a taxi pulled up, and these guys get out of the taxi. Well, three of them stepped out, and one fell out, and we just heard this kadunk. So we offered to help. Do you, you need some help? And they kind of effed us off and said, you know, do your own thing, like that kind of thing. <laughs> and I was still at the taxi, thinking, by God, this man's big, and he was taller than me, and his knees were still in the taxi. <laughs> which he thought was funny because he was laying on his back on the floor and he's left the taxi. so he stood up and he was enormous about six foot eight and he started throwing punches and he had a Geordie accent and my mate was a Geordie turned around and went oh he's a Geordie straight into a punch so he, he just kicked off immediately and the televisors were battling on the road and um, and we, we got arrested we got arrested by the Ministry of Defence Police and the Naval Patrol got locked up and it was because there were six of us and we went to the commander's table, you you can all give your own story. Yeah. Or you can elect somebody to speak on your behalf. Mm. And we elected our officer, uh, our signals communication officer, to speak on our behalf. And he took all the notes and everything and and he portrayed what we'd done, that the fact that we hadn't started the fight, they had, they'd got mm. the angry and they, they are mate first, we were defending him and so on and so forth. And we seemed to be getting there. And the commander said, so how long did we, oh, oh the big man, we ended up having to kick him. To get him off our mate. And um and the commander t- asked the question, so how long were you kicking this man in the head for? And he looked down at his notes and, the, and we'd, we'd said the whole fight lasted three minutes. From start to finish, it was three minutes. So he said, Yes, sir, three minutes. And he went, Three minutes? You were kicking this man in the head for three minutes. And we had to stand there and go, No, 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 the whole fight was three minutes. We got kicked in the head once. Yeah. And um and that was it. We went downhill, so we got seven days number nine's punishment and fourteen days stoppage of leave. But then, what does that involve? That punishment. So the punishment is five hours work a day on top of what you're doing. Oh so wow! When you're at senior, and what is what is the normal sort of a thing a day? A day, you're probably working between eight and ten hours every day oh. on your part of shit. Wow! So, so that would be like 15, 16 hours then. And if you're doing something called a replenishment at sea. The whole ship's company have to join in replenishment at sea, so you might do another two hours on a, on a day. And the five hours extra work was in the kitchen, so you were scrubbing pans. Oh, right. yeah. I'm I'm an expert at cleaning pans. Yeah, <laughs> without, without a Brillo pad, um, and and that kind of set the scene. So things that happened after that, I just got I just got oh, it's Perkins. Mm. So Perkins was in trouble more so than most of his colleagues because. Of, of that that first big offence. Yeah, you got marked as a troublemaker. I did, I did. Um, so in, ter- in terms of my, my, I think my greatest success was in, in my, on my last draft, which was a, a little minesweeper called HMS Soberton. Mm. And our captain went on to become 
uh, Admiral of the Fleet, oh, wow. Command, Commander-in-Chief, uh, Royal Navy. And then um, it, it, we took a ship out of refit. So the ship goes into a dockyard and it's completely stripped. Everything's taken apart, rebuilt. You get new elements to the ship, new parts mm. and things. And then you have to make that ship seaworthy. And I, I was 22 years old. So really very, very young to have as an, an NCO and be responsible for putting aerials up, being responsible for fitting out a comms office, hmm. working with the dockyard. And it was a civilian refit, one of the first uh, total ship refits by a civilian dockyard uh, or civilians. And um, and they were quite heavily unionised. And it was there, was there was a wonderful moment where we're putting, we, we, we put something up called the main roof and it's a whole series of copper cables, copper wires, which have to be spliced and, and uh, insulated. And, uh, and I said, right, well, you know, I'll do that. And the dockyard foreman I said, no, we do that. You don't touch anything. <laughs> he said, so how do we do it? <laughs> so I had to sit as a technical advisor to, to a dockyard team, putting up my aerials. And some, some of them hadn't done some of the types of work. Um, and, and so getting the ship, doing my part to get a ship ready to join the fleet, yeah. you have to be kind of past fit to join the fleet. So you go through mm-hmm. something called flag officer sea tra- uh, well sea training and you have to pass and you and you you put under intense pressure for a two three four week period test and you either go back to start and start again or you pass and they you enter the fleet and you become operational and it was quite I, I, there was quite a significant moment and there was and that success was shared because everybody on the ship everybody with any form of responsibility for doing something all all came through that process hmm. A, a fantastic team bonding thing. Uh, how, how long had you been in the Navy till that time? Uh, four and a half years. Yeah, so that's like, so that, but that was towards the end of your, um, like you said before, but still, like you were so young. Yes. And to have achieved that. Yeah. And it was, it, it, I was so, strangely enough, I was only talking about this last night with some friends that I went for a job working for. The job, the, the job was working for Ferrymasters part of PL. And mm. uh, they didn't believe that I had the experience I had as a 23-year-old. No, yeah. you can't have done that. And they, they, I said, well, it's, it's on my documents. And this yeah. guy said, I don't understand what they are. And then he just he, he dismissed them. He dismissed my six-year military record Come because <laughs> he didn't understand it. I said, Well, can I explain? He said, No, it's too late now. You haven't got the job. I, I, it was very I was a very, very angry man. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he, he essentially called me a liar. Seriously. And I've had a serious disdain for Ferrymasters and PO ever since. But yeah, that's another Did thing. you ever go back to him and sort of. <laughs> no, didn't give him. So, like, you, so you left the Navy when you were 23, then around 23, 23 and a half, some, someday around that time. Yeah. So, what, what did you do? From like what kind of uh, what fields of work did you go into? So I, I, my dad said I was a fool for coming out of the navy and I should have stayed in because unemployment was terrible at a million, just 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 topped a million, which is wow. nothing compared to what it's been in recent years. But anyway, <laughs> um, work was quite scarce, and um, I, I did some um, work experience in the construction sector. Mm. Um, I, I did some work experience with family and friends. Uh, in a, de- a delivery truck with an uncle, mm. uh, and then 
I did start work at one place, which was a complete farce. I was there for 45 minutes. I went in 15 minutes earlier, and after 30 minutes of paid time, I walked out mm. um, because it wasn't what was advertised. Um, because I'm, I, I, I stand up and I speak, and which has been one of my greatest failings or greatest weaknesses, and it's also one of my greatest strengths because yeah. I don't if I see something that's not right, uh, you have to speak up. Yeah, I do, and I still today as as a 66 year old young man. Yeah. Uh, and I did something last night where I stood up and said, that's not right. Yeah. Funnily enough. Um, and it, it, it was it was quite difficult. I went, I went to, I applied for 30, 40 jobs over a month period, managed to get two interviews and got one job. And the job I got was working for the local council in a, mm-hmm. an emergency control room. So it was kind of doing some things like I'd done in the Navy. Yeah. Um, it was passing, passing work out to highways, street lighting, building maintenance gangs. So did you stay there till your retirement or? No, so I was there, I was there for 10 years. Um, 10 years, still a big amount it was, of time. It was a big, big, long time for me. It was working shifts. It was, I got a chance to see my children grow up. So mm. shifts, I was at home in, in the daytime. So I got a chance to take them to school and pick them up from school. Yeah. When, they, when they were babies, at mm. and it was nappies for the first two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Didn't didn't understand anything about pampers. We we used old fashioned Terry town yeah. nappies <laughs> crashing out in a bucket in the night. Um, and so that was great for me, um, as a, from a family perspective. But it wasn't testing my mm. intellect sufficiently. Mm. I applied for a job and, and which I got on the trams in Manchester on Metrolink. Mm. Started there as a senior controller and went through them and left as operations director. Oh, nice. And then I went kind of back into um from there i went into um the construction sector or highways and transportation again first of all as a consultant and then working for a, a contractor called skanska made a big company uh, and it was from skanska that i retired in 2018 mm. um lovely time I, I so, think, what, what, why did you to go back to your dad's question why did you leave the navy then like what made you what was it I met Beverly. I met my, I met oh, my, I met yeah. my soulmate. And yeah. um, uh, there's a. You can't match like because the navy you're out for so long. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. And for, for it's like it's in my books, funny enough, but it's, it's quite a long story. I'll try and try and summarize it. But <laughs> we 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 I planned to come out and I had to give eighteen months notice. So mm. four and a half years I gave eighteen months notice, which mm. got me to six years, and um, and in that time circumstances changed and we brought our wedding forward so it, it meant several things we didn't have enough money to do everything we wanted to do mm. we bought a house and that was it so we had no honeymoon um if you unless you call it a weekend in conway uh, a honeymoon but that was about the nearest thing we got to what we do um but i also wanted to try because he did listen to me dad uh he said think about it and it was actually a trial period so we got married in the may mm. I saw my wife twice between May and December, well, May, May and November, and uh, oh, so that's hard. It's very, very difficult. Yeah, but, you know, especially it's... when you are like family oriented. So, yeah, and 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 we, you know, in in May next year, we'll be married forty four years. Mm. Uh, all the, all the things I've done, and it was um, it was a big decision. Yeah, and and, and I think another potential success was my my captain. My commanding officer on, my, on the last day as I left the ship, he said, "Just sit down for a minute." And he and he and he, he flipped a piece of paper around on his desk, and it was a commission warrant. 
and he, he was offering me to stay in the Navy and become an officer. Oh, wow. And, and I was just blown away. So I was like, At that age as well, like, wow, yeah. Staggered, he said, we, we, the Navy needs people like you. And I said, what, even with all my, my, my troubles and whatnot, he said, you, you used to describe me as a bouncing in a box. I was always yeah. wanting to do something. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably a bit ADHD, to be honest, and I just mm. I've been diagnosed, but I just I probably am because I'm always thinking about what comes next, what what we're doing next, what's yeah. It's a strange sensation, and it means yeah. I've I've learned to try and enjoy the moment a lot better. Mm. Yeah, bounce around here, but I didn't think I would have done very well as an officer, mm. and I, and I thanked him very much and walked out the door. I have seen since him, seen him since several times at different events. I got an invite to his retirement, one of his retirement days, which was just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and and he said, you you always were ambitious. You always were wanting to do mm-hmm. things that you wanted to be a success. I could see that. And and I wouldn't have described it that way when I was a kid. I understand yeah. it now. I didn't then. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, uh, they see things in you, obviously, at that age, but you're not able to see that yourself. Yeah, I mean, but that that was a big thing to give up you know a commission to be an officer at that age that would have set you up like in a way different sort of life but you know it's not like but you you had to choose between that or the you know having more close connection with the family basically or having a future connection with the family yeah i i, I knew i knew colleagues in the navy and 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 since who've their marriages have folded because they were away too much. Mm. Whether they took advantage of that separation and did other things, which caused problems, they or their wives, yeah. um, it, that separation is not a good thing. And I've, and I, I, I year, 2006, I turned down an opportunity to work in the Middle East mm. because my wife didn't, didn't want to go. And, and our children were still at school and at college at the time. Yeah. And I, and I, I knew it wouldn't have worked. If I'd have spent, yeah. you know, Six months at a time, not seeing them. Mm. That that was that's just like giving up. Giving up on your family, it felt like to me. Yeah. Like, you know, which is why I left. Um, why I left the trams. So he got new owners, and and I I could have stayed with a company called Circle, but I, I, I didn't. I made a choice to do something else. Mm. It was very similar to when I left the navy. Yeah. Um, making that choice to do something else. Yeah. Talk to anybody. You, you'll have done it yourself. You'll have changed jobs at some point, and you question everything. You question, is it going to be a success? I'm like, what's going to happen? And then there's that period of time when you're on probation, they might decide they don't like you and you're going to get the elbow. And then then you'd learn new ways. You might be doing the same job, but it's it's a different environment. You're learning new ways. But that I find that adventurous as well because I change my jobs a lot as well, (laughs) you know, quite often because I just want that feeling again of, you know, of not knowing stuff, putting myself in that position of not knowing and trying to learn, like, you know, sort of a thing. When, when I went to Atkins, um, <coughs> the, the, my boss, my MD there said, so, you know, why why, why have you made this change? Because it was a significant change from going from an operational management role into a consultancy role. Hmm. I said, well, I, I, to me, it's, it's it's something new, something exciting. And I, and I, I use analogies quite often. And I said, I feel like... Um, I've packed the parachute. So the parachute is there, but I've packed it. I know what's in that bag. Yeah. I jump out of the plane and I pull the ripcord and I'll only know if I'm a success if the if the parachute opens. And he, he thought yeah. it was hilarious. I said, that's what it feels like. I'm jumping into the unknown here. 
Yeah. I know what to do. I know what I've got all these skills yeah. and capabilities. But yeah, still- you back yourself. You you have confidence in your own ability, yeah. you know, to be able to be successful. But th- this is the thing as well, like um the, the the your six years in the navy set you up as well like for that life to have that confidence in you you know you're on a ship and people are dependent on you to do certain jobs and you're doing it day in and day out you know giving that responsibility i used to work um for a bit of time i used to work in the kitchen as a as a chef and we used to get these apprentices like you know 17 years old and stuff you know in the kitchen and what I would what I would see like they always they had this sulky sort of attitude or like you know um, didn't want to be there their mom or dad had forced them to be there or all of that sort but the moment I started giving them responsibility especially the guys you know straight away they would perk up and they would like you know really follow the orders and really wanting to impress you know and that it gave them direction. I always told them, you don't have to work in the kitchen, but I'm teaching you something completely different. I'm teaching you to see that what happens when I give you responsibility and the joy that you get of finishing a task successfully. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And it's it's been something that, that's been prevalent in my career right through from, from, from joining the Navy onwards. Not the stuff that happened before the Navy, was wasn't the same as I was. I was a butcher. Uh, I worked in a butcher shop for eighteen months, part time, and then six, seven months full time. Um, and and that was just learning to do things. Oh, I'm, I'm going to correct that. Actually, my boss was quite lazy, so he taught me to do things so he wouldn't have to do them. <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved yeah. being able to take apart whatever that thing was and present it to a customer as a as a as a, as a an item that they would want to buy. Yeah, take home, cook, and eat. Um, but I've also been looking in the jobs in the Navy in particular, and then in different roles mm. since, is people taking an interest in me, mm. just like you've described, and giving them giving me some responsibility, giving me some some coaching. Yeah, I know it now as mentoring. I didn't know it was I was being mentored in those days. I just thought that person's quite kind, helping me, showing me this. And when I went to the council. Um, the, the computer systems were mainframe, big IBM mainframe. Yeah, yeah. Have a well, we don't have laptops then, but to have a, a desktop computer, you know, you had something special. Yeah. Uh, and the boss said, "Oh, we've we've had we've had one that's damaged and it can't be repaired. It's thirty percent of the hard drive's gone, but you can still use it for certain things, storing mm. data, so on, so forth." And he just saw that I had an aptitude for using keyboards, and just because I'd, I'd done that training, yeah. and then once you'd got that. There was a period of time where I knew a lot of stuff. Now I don't. It's it's, it's kind of gone beyond me yeah. in terms of what yeah. I just use the computer as a tool. Mm. But I was mentored, and and it's and it gave me it gave me um, the not the idea that's the wrong word, but it gave me the uh, impetus to share my knowledge and to mentor. So I I still mentor what one person these days who's in work. And, yeah. and he, he's in a pretty high-powered job. And every now and then we'll have a cup of tea or a beer and we'll just talk. Yeah. And he'll share some things. There's some things, and I don't need to. There's no intervention from me. I just listen. Mm. I'm a sounding board. Um, but why I'm, I'm enjoying the volunteering, because I know I'm helping some people mm. achieve some things. And, and and that makes me feel good. Yeah. I mean, that's that's so important, having those people 
having those good role models around you, especially when you are younger and like, you know, going into a career and stuff like people taking the response, uh, giving you the responsibility, giving you that, you know, uh, because us men, like we, our mental health is done through by doing things more than, you know, by talking about it. Yeah. So it's like, we are more comfortable with that. Like that's as far as I've seen with the young guys as well. Like they had a lot of troubles and stuff, but once I started giving them things to do, like, this is your task, you do this. I want this done. And I wouldn't say like, it's just a normal task that I want this done. It's very important for my other things that I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. The more they take, took that responsibility, the more I would see a change in their whole personality. The next day they would come up like with, like you know they shove jackets properly you know cleaned and stuff because they feel like okay they're important like you know they're gonna put into it and they're gonna come and ask me like oh how i am and like you know sort of taking an interest in everything so it's very important to have like you know to mentor young people like that and and i think that those people that haven't had that because some people can go through their lives and not have Mm. that positive uh, male role model for them I think I was very, very lucky that I had, um, in my day, I guess all my uncles and aunts were quite traditional insofar as things that they'd done, the roles that they'd undertaken. But those that gave me time, those that listened to me, those that asked me what I was doing, what I was getting on with, and when I'd drawn a picture or done something and showed them, they were the ones that went, oh, that's really good. And there were some others who went, Children should be seen and not heard, kind of thing. And those yeah. sisters that poo pooed me don't feature in my life, really. I yeah. Not people I, I went to see, but it, it, right up until my children were born, I was still seeing aunts and uncles on a regular basis because I had uh, I had a bond with them. They yeah. told me their stories, they, they'd listened to mine, and, and that's really quite powerful. And I, I think today's society, uh, too many parts of it. Don't do that. They're not that mm. close. Um, you know, I'm aware. I'm aware of people. That I haven't seen my brother for three years. Mm. Well, I, I speak yeah. to my brother most days, and I see him at least once or twice a week. Yeah. Um, that that part of that's what I've seen as well. Family and community. It's like when you when you destruct that in that way, you know, you lose so much of the humanity itself because you lose connection where you're from, where you're based, where your values come from, where your culture come from, you know, we, we can't all be like this blob of globalized people, like from, we have to have roots and we have to want to have those roots and respect those roots. And, you know, that becomes our priority then. Once we lose connection from that local community, that's very hard. And, um, you know, that, that has been the case for me personally for like, you know, a long time in my life because I was born in a different country then I lived in a different country and then I'm here, right? Because, but when I joined my um, local cricket club, that's where I saw like community, you know, proper community over there because they, they were uh, fathers and their sons, right? And, and those like, you know, those kids are learning from all the uh, other older men who are there and, and they take, you know, they're listening to how they're speaking to each other. So you have to be on your best behavior as well, because you are an example to the kids, right? 
and I saw like this is the connection. You know, it's a local community. Everyone lives locally. They know each other. That's how you create that connection with people. Once you start losing it, then you don't. Then you don't know what are the consequences of it because you're not looking up to anyone. You're not wanting to impress anyone because everyone wants to. You know, younger boys want to impress someone and if they don't get the right role models and they're going trying to impress the wrong kind of people that's why we have the gang cultures and stuff you know well i've got six grandchildren um and uh three girls three boys and the the, the girls have all got good role models in their mums mm. the girls have all, have all got good role models in their grandpa their grandmas um and that's really you know, it's really really important um and it's and and in the in the same way the boys, it's it's interchangeable. So my my grandchildren have lots of role models in their parents and in their grandparents, um, and the world is is going to be a, a, a different place for them in terms of their engagement and how they um, enter life in the same way that we yeah. are. And I, well, the important thing for me is giving them time. Yeah. Um, no matter what it is, if they want to show me something, if they want to tell me something, if they want to read a read a book, yeah, to draw something, ask me to draw something. We draw, and yeah. um, and because it's those memories that they're going to take ahead, and then when it's their time to be in your position, they'll remember what was done for them, and they would want to do that as oh, like pay it forward sort of a thing. Yeah, but as 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 we know, not all families are the same, and yeah. My parents, really, really important role models for me. Mm. As I said, strong family values. My brother, my sister, my nieces, we, we're very close. We we use social media to our advantage, even though we all live in, in the same town, which is usual. Yeah. Five miles separates, whatever that is, 27 people. Yeah. And we can pop in, pop round, help, we visit. Yeah. And we and we and we engage socially. Um, yeah. And, and share stuff so well, it's, it's good to have that network around you like you know 27 you know family members all connected all there to help each other and you know that's why yeah but i know like all families are not the same and people have different situations and you know but at least we have to put out this positive message because that is something to aspire to right like to have like let's say if someone doesn't have a family if they are you know, if, if they're, um, you know, orphaned or if they are like, you know, separated and, you know, they have step parents and whatnot, but at least they need to aspire to something positive, right? So that when it's their time to have a family, that going forward, they create that for their kids and, you know, learn the lessons and not replicate what had been done to them. And that that's important because I think so that's what we are missing. And that's what the army armed forces provides for you know people or used to provide more for the people that they would get the mentorship they would get the the idea of a family and wanting to that connection you know they do and, and, I, and I, I honestly believe that's the same today as it ever has been i yeah. think that, i think the forces in particular are a family and um and, and and i'm still in contact with some guys i served with 43 years ago yeah um, we meet socially, not as often as we probably should do, but we meet every every three or four months, and then we have one weekend just for the day, and then we have one weekend away in Portsmouth, and when a lot of us rock up and and we reminisce, yeah, 
whilst we're also reminiscing, we're sharing with each other our successes that we've yeah that we've done and how our families are doing. So you, you, I'll never lose that bond. Yeah, it's as simple as that. And I might not see them often, but as soon as we do, you're completely comfortable in each other's company. Yeah. Well, tell us another another story, but not uh, where you were in trouble, <laughs> but something like you know that you and your group did or something that you're proud of another thing or something so so i think that our town has there's something called armed forces day mm. introduced by um gordon brown's government i think um and it was it was a, an opportunity to celebrate all that we do in the armed forces mm. so stockport had contributed some money towards several small events that took part took place in different parts of the town and we came together and said, you know, we, we should be better than this. Having seen how some other towns and cities um, uh, celebrated the day, uh, we didn't think we were doing enough. It was mm. quite funny that our our challenge up from the ground level of, of, of veterans and serving people and cadets and instructors, we'd reached up at the same time as um, the Lord Lieutenant's office uh, the Lord Lieutenancy re reports directly to the royalty, so the, essentially the Lord Lieutenant of Greater Manchester reports directly to the King, and uh, she has deputies in, in, in each of the towns. And our deputy, Lord Lieutenant, was pushing down, saying, why don't we do better in Stockport? So we met and uh, and, and and talked about doing something grand. So we talked about running a an event in Stockport that had never been run before. So we decided we wanted to have a, an event in the marketplace. It seemed to be the right place to do it. Stalls, static displays, and that we would have a parade and a march with a band. And we managed to secure the Lord Lieutenant of Greater Manchester with, the, with our deputy who took the salute. And we had 250 people march from a place called St. Peter's Square along Peter's Gate into the marketplace. We had um, lots of military hardware uh, on show. We had seven charities all sharing the great work that they were doing. Um, and we had live music on a stage and we finished off with uh, the Stockport Schools brass band and they played the National Anthem That's uh, cool. last thing in the afternoon. And we we organised that ourselves. We raised the money for it ourselves mm. and we delivered it. And from that, that, that's essentially how SAFCO was formed. So SAFCO was formed just after Armed Forces Day this year. Mm. We've play since late June. And we're already planning for next year's celebration. Yeah. And the we've created momentum. And we've got lots and lots of passionate, enthusiastic people who we've drawn together come from, you know, they're not all ex-military. Um, so, some, 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 some of our group are have not ever served. One lady, her dad was at Normandy. Mm. Uh, another lady was an ex-counsellor responsible for armed forces and veterans in Stockport. Mm. She's, our, she's our chair. And, um, and together, we've created this momentum that didn't exist before. Yeah. And, if I I don't keep a CV anymore, but if 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 I was updating my CV, that would be firmly planted. Yeah, a success story. Yeah, an event run by volunteers. Yeah, so, supported by Stockport Council. I mustn't take anything away from mm. them. Um, and the mayor. It rejuvenates the community as well over there. Yeah, great success. And uh, as I say, we're planning for next year's event already. Oh, that's great. So. That's the sort of Stockport Armed Forces Community Organization, right? Yeah. So the other one that you're 
um, chairman of uh, within the stock board. Um, tell us a bit about that. What do you do uh, with them? Okay, so it, it's a small group. It's not it's not a massive group. I think there's probably only 25, 26 of us all together. And it's about comradeship and companionship. Um, and it's a bit like the breakfast. I'm also involved in breakfast clubs in Stockport, mm. which is about combating isolation and loneliness mm. in the military community. Stockport has almost 8,000 veterans. Um, 3.4% of the population have served in the force wow. at some point. Um, I don't know what the data is for current serving. That's that's quite protected information, I think. Mm. Not. But we also have cadets, cadet instructors. Mm. But we've got hundreds and hundreds of cadets in the army uh, yeah. uh, and sea cadets, and they're all part of it. And so, um, the, the 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 naval association is about a specific group of people, but we recognise that we link into all those other things as well. Mm. Um, we have a memorial regarding a ship that was called SS Stockport, which was a convoy rescue ship. Mm. But during the Second World War, ships were, we needed to bring goods in, which mainly came across the Atlantic from uh, the States. And we were losing freight ships uh, at a ridiculous rate. Every day, there were, there were ships would be sunk by the Germans. And so the, the government of the day created these convoy rescue ships and they would, designed to be slightly faster than the freight vessels. And as I'll go back a little bit because this we, we tell this story every year. And whilst the um we we and the Americans were building ships faster than they were being sunk, they were running out of crews. So whilst mm-hmm. it was a positive thing that they could they could keep building ships, they were losing too many crews. So these rescue ships, their sole role was to pull men out of the water and stop them from drowning. And um, sadly, after and it rescued one of the highest records of rescuing people. And one particular day, it rescued sixty odd. Well, they're not sure whether it was sixty or one hundred and twenty, but it was sixty crew, and the ship was torpedoed and sank. Lost loss of all hands. And it's quite, it's quite, it's a sad story. Mm. And we commemorate it every year. And there is a memorial in the in the town centre dedicated to it. And and in doing so, when we hold that memorial, um, we're well supported by the civic uh, organisation, so the mayor, the deputy mayor, mm. the mayors will come along for the service and come along for a bite to eat afterwards. And some of the families of those who died still come to the memorial every year as well. Mm. That's that's really quite important, yeah. as well as the importance of maintaining the comradeship and companionship. So what is in the waters of Stockport that makes people go in the armed forces so much? I think mean, I think it's it's a northwest issue. It's a north it's a north of England issue. I think, but the mm. northwest is that is has, has provided the highest proportion of volunteers into the armed forces for over fifty years, sixty years. Yeah, and some of it is is you can credit you can credit with the industrial revolution. Mm. And the, you know, it, it, there yeah. are times where work there hasn't been the work. Mm. People have the 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 army, the navy, and the air force have targeted the areas of deprivation mm. and to, to get people to come into the forces. Yeah. I, I, I lived on a council estate. Mm. As a council house kid until I was 18. Mm. Uh, long after I joined the Navy, um, home was a council house. And, mm. um, it, 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 but even though we didn't have anything, we didn't have any great value, what mm. we did have was our closeness as a family. Yeah. And some other families I can't, aren't quite like that. I knew when I joined up. Mm. I had some kids who never never spoke to the parents. Mm. 
I, I couldn't wait to get home to see my family. Yeah. And other guys, we're, no, I'm, not, I'm not going home. It's better here. It's better on the ship. I get better accommodation, better food. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't think it's just Stockport, but there, it, it, Wigan. Lots of those sort of places. Merseyside, Lancashire. Cheshire, big big recruitment areas, and you talk to anybody from. But York. at the same time, it creates that um, it maintains that national connection, right? Because if if there wasn't this alternative, they would be completely these areas would be completely disconnected from Britain itself, and they would become more and more resentful for not having those opportunities and go completely off board. It, it's it's still an issue. The the, the north south divide is is right. I mean, uh, the 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 um, Prime Minister cancelled HS2. Whether HS2 would have been a successor or not in terms of a transport system, the fact was it's, it was going to provide work for fifteen to 20,000 people yeah. in the yeah. north um, and, and other places where they're building roads, mm. make, make, uh, make, uh, making signalling and, and, and power and communication systems. So the, in, in order to create a better society in the north, mm. you need better transport links. Yeah. I'm way north and south, and our motorway east and west hmm. is clogged, and the railway lines are clogged. Yeah. So, what's being offered as an alternative to HS2 doesn't tackle some hmm. of those fundamental problems because you have to go where the work is. Yeah. And- but that's why I think like we, we need really need to move the the working capital away from London to somewhere in the mid or in the north, towards Leeds or like somewhere over there. <clears throat> so people actually see these live issues they're more connected to, to those issues it's not like just hearsay and stuff like that they they these politicians will have to experience those issues themselves and they will take more notice of it like you know london can still be our capital but as a political capital or something or a working capital we can move it up the north and then say look how, now this is how you have to you know go about your life let's fix it then well politicians can, can only do so much the rules and the process yeah. are geared to support in london and the vast majority of decisions sorry the vast majority of people providing that data would yeah. live in london in and around yeah. why would they want to spend to send money anywhere else yeah so that the whole system is geared up to serve in london yeah uh, that that's it is what it feels like doesn't it like right. the whole of country is geared to serve london yeah. rather than london being geared and, to serve the country and so civil servants need need yeah. need more reminding than they currently are mm. very easy for them to blame it on the politicians it's easy for us to blame yeah them. yeah i mean civil servants and that's community. the thing like or within the local com- um, councils uh, the civil service they're the engine of the government and they they kind of dissuade responsibility when they just blame the politicians. Like, well, you know, politicians, like you said, they can only do as much. If if you're going to frustrate their efforts, they're not going to be able to complete things because they only have four years, four or five years with them, you know. But yeah, I mean, if a, a lot can be changed if we took that out of London, you know, the 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 mechanisms of our government, not just politicians, but civil service as well, like, you know, and put them in different places in the country. You know, we might get somewhere. But yeah. unlikely. Yeah, it's very unlikely. And I'm, 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 I'm not here to talk about politics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, unlikely that will happen anyways. So your 
the um, uh, the project Reki that you're um, ambassador of. Uh, yeah. Tell us a bit more about it, like what work you guys are doing with them. Okay, so it's a it's a registered charity, and it's responsible for uh, creating something called Pathways into Construction. So Pathways into Construction comes with a it's a kind of two week e learning exercise, but there are some site visits to construction sites, mm. and each of the candidates gets uh, knowledge training and as I said they can work the qualification but more importantly they get put face to face in front of some of the country's leading tier one and tier two contractors so we were always looking for project managers mm. we're not talking about you know bricklayers or plumbers mm. we'll need bricklayers and plumbers but some of the people coming out of the armed forces are coming out with much more technical skills these days mm. than my day yeah. um, and certainly there are some people who want who what who've enjoyed working in the field and want to be in the field in an outside role mm. uh, rather than being you know shut away in an office or certainly not wanting to work in a in a factory anything like that um and so pathways into construction is one one sector there are other sectors so i have a there's a friend of mine who runs something called the veterans food company and he's leading a, a, a very, very similar um, project for service people who want to transition into the food and beverage sector. Mm. So um, with with guarantees of jobs at the end of it. So Project Recce at the moment has got a 93% success rate that current serving personnel and people who've left are in difficulty because we reach out to, to some quite needy folk. Mm. Uh, and they they are they are offered the training support and put in front of potential employers mm. who are looking for lots of different types of roles. Yeah. And it, it, it's good. So we, as ambassadors, we we kind of get together on a on a on a, on a bi monthly basis and uh, share our kind of war stories. But we we're connected by social media, and so there are some um, hard to reach characters. And I'm talking now about people who've ended up homeless or en ended up in a, you know, rehabilitating from drug and alcohol dependency. So it, it, it's got some really, you know, it's dealing with some sharp issues as mm. well as helping some very, very qualified and technical people enter the construction sector in in good roles. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the Veterans Affairs Office is led by Johnny Mercer, who's an MP, Johnny Mercer has a very, very simple message. Um, you, you'll get service people to rehabilitate and transition into civilian street easier if they've got a job. Yeah. If they come out without work, they some of them will just literally rattle down through the levels and end up on the street. Yeah. They, they One thing that the military does is institutionalise you. You're, yeah. You know, you, you're, fed, you're fed three hot meals a day. Yeah. Somebody is responsible for feeding you. Somebody is responsible for buying the clothing for you. Mm. Somebody's helping you with the training. And then when you leave, you, the door closes and the Ministry of Defence, this is personal mm. of mine, shut the door on you. Mm. No way back. You can't knock on the door and say, hang on a minute, I forgot. Or yeah. can I just have, or can you help me please? The MLB, yeah. now out there are companies and charities. They'll 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 help you now. Mm. And it's difficult. At yeah. 20, 23, I, and I'd have described this, there's my analogy. So have you seen the movie Beetlejuice? Yeah. So in Beetlejuice, when, and I, I always forget the, 
the 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 two the, the couple who have mm. died don't know they're dead. Yeah, and where they call Beetlejuice because they know they're dead, and he does something, and they step out the door, and as they step out the door of the house, the world changes. It's not the world they can see; it's snakes and sand mm. and noises. That's what it feels like. Mm. Enter City Street. You don't know. You don't know how things work. Yeah, I mean that in 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 sincerity, and I think I'm a pretty bright person, yeah. and I got lost. Yeah, I mean nightmare that I'd never get a job. Mm. And I would the easiest thing to do would be to go back in the navy. Yeah, and yeah. Um, people today are are just the same. It's a different world, and there's different things going on, but it's still the same. That door closes, and some people are wide-eyed at the world. Yeah, we've cut through social media, but some of them don't know don't know how to get a mortgage, don't know what to do. Don't. No, it's sort of like if if you were. Uh, for 10 years you were living in a hotel yeah. right and you didn't have to pay rent you didn't have like you didn't have to pay your bills you didn't have to do anything and then all of a sudden you're buying a house and you have to take care of everything now you don't know it's like oh i have to get the gutters clean like even small things like that you know yeah. it's just you don't know what's going on no and 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 you you kind of do you do pay you do pay yeah. some rents and things in, in accommodation but, yeah. um it, this the lot lots of those little things mm. we've all we've all just become just accustomed to yeah they're not and and mm. and they have to have to find the feet for a period of time so the, the things that anything that i can do to help somebody transition better than i did mm. then i think i've helped yeah I've, those other people around me who do all the similar kinds of roles we're just trying to help people find the feet we're yeah. not and we're not we're, and we're volunteers we're not doing it for reward we're not We're not mm. an agency or anything like that, but we yeah. recognize people struggle. We really do. Yeah, I mean, it's important to have like spokespeople like within the MPs, like Johnny Mercer and stuff, who have experienced it firsthand themselves. It's very important to have that relevance, like you know, whatever policies they're going to push are going to be from their personal experiences. So it's yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty good. Like, I'll. I'll I really want people to go and read your um your three part story about like you know about your time over there because I want people to ha- find that adventure but like tell us more of a one more of the story from there like especially somewhere where you got in trouble <laughs> just just to have that fun it, yeah it's 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 not all about it's not it's not all about getting <laughs> and and the books actually um it's my life story so mm. It's, there's there's large elements of the book that are not about the services. They're about yeah. how I've used those service experiences to deal with different. Mm. Things. Yeah, which is important for people to, yeah. You really must, and the fact that I was I, I was I was a good student until I was about twelve years old, mm. and and I, I succumbed to peer pressure kind of thing. You mm. know, smoke cigarettes, do silly things, mm. um, and I would, if somebody wants to do that, that's fine. But I, I would rather say that's not the right thing to do. What I did is not the right approach. Yeah. I, ended up, I ended up in a very good place, but I got there by lots of hard work, mm. some some good luck, yeah. and some judgment. Um, but it's not my, my path isn't the same for everybody. But I write, I've wrote, I've written the books to entertain, yeah, and educate. I actually wrote the books during lockdown, and mm. it was I was I, I was doing like a daily joke on Facebook, and my friend said. You know, if you wrote a book, I'd buy it. Like, I wrote a book. 
So yeah. I actually thought that I was writing the books in my language, which is yeah. raw, um, for my grandchildren because mm. the six six grandchildren are all seven and under. Yeah, I, I can't tell them some of the tales. I can't yeah. tell them some of the things. They have to grow up, do. <laughs> <laughs> but I, when they grow up and they're old enough to know, I might not have the presence mm. of mind, state of mind. I might not be well enough to tell them the story. So mm. I've written, I've written, I wrote the books as much to they're there. Those stories are there now forever, and their kids can pick them up and go, "My granddad did what?" You know. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 yeah, silly things. Um, I'll, I'll, alcohol. I know I drink and I drink too much probably, but mm. alcohol has always been my undoing. Mm. Well, what's your what's your favorite tipple? I like a glass of wine. Yeah, uh, I like a red I like a rum. Red. I'm a red wine drinker. Yeah, I love rum as well, actually. And I and I like a beer with my mate. So, um, we I was on the Soberton, and it was and it was probably the last charge I got in the navy. Um, and it was a little minesweeper, and we were due to sail on my birthday, and I didn't tell everybody it was my birthday mm. until we were due to sail because I didn't want to go out the night before, drink a load of ale, feel ill, and then go see in a storm. Yeah, because uh, I wasn't a particularly steady sailor anyway. When I was at sea, I used to, I weighed ten stone three or ten stone two when I came out of the navy, which was only six pound more than a than a weighed when I joined up in nineteen seventy. <laughs> I'm, I'm I am fifty percent and more up on that now. Yeah, <laughs> but it was my birthday, so I, uh, I said, right, what we do for, when we get when I went for my breakfast, can I have an extra egg? Seeing it's my birthday, and it was your birthday. And I said, yeah, why don't you tell us yesterday I could have a few beers? I said, oh, because we're sailing. And then we heard this, boom. <laughs> and a piece of lagging blew out of the funnel. And the skipper said, right, we're not sailing. We're not sailing until tomorrow. So we get this lagging fixed. And they all went, hey, we'll take us out for a beer. <laughs> That's what they did. They took me ashore. So they, I, I, I drank way, way, way too much beer <laughs> to the point where I couldn't really see. And the whole ship's company, bar the skipper, and the duty crew were drinking with me in a place called Inverkeeling in Scotland. And um, and I had three pints in front of me. And somebody said, it's your round, boss. And you need to start shifting these beers. So I said, I can't drink any more beer. I'll have um, And I just looked up. And all I could see in front of me was Perno. I said, I'll have a Perno. So I tapped a Perno. And I drank it. I thought, oh, that's awful. I drank half a pint. And the lad next to me said, get him another Perno. We'll soon shift this beer. So they got the other person <laughs> chatting away. <laughs> so within about 30, 35 minutes, I drank three pints and about 12 pernos. <laughs> can, we, can we do something to sweeten the perno up? And the barman said, put lemonade in it. So my, my drinks then were double perno and lemonades. <laughs> I had another 15, I think. I think somebody counted 27 pernos. Oh. <laughs> and that's when I stopped breathing. And uh, it's it's quite it's quite scary, really. <laughs> and um, and they they're trying to get me back on board, and it was officers' rounds, so they come round the, the dockyard. It was only yeah. evening, and um, I was not going down below because I hadn't stopped breathing at that point. I just felt sick and ill. Mm. And, and when they tried to get me down the ladder, I was holding onto a stanchion and fighting people. Dude, I'm not going down there. It felt like to me that there were flames coming out of the ship. Oh, really? Out of the hatch. And I thought, if I go down there, I'm going to die. Mm. Whatever that subconscious was, was telling me not to go down there. And it's while they were grappling with me that I stopped breathing. And so they got an ambulance and they gave me oxygen, CPR, oxygen, into sick bait. 
And then when they realised somebody said he's drank a lot of alcohol, they stomach pump me. Right, stomach pump is a, a rubber tube is forced down your throat into your stomach, and they fill uh-huh. salt water, and and then you're ill. You're you're ill, really ill. That's everything has to come out. And then at some point in the night, I think around about midnight, they, they said I was fit enough to spend the rest of the night in cells. So I was in the cells, and um, the master of arms came in, who was like a chief chief of police in the naval dockyard, and he came in and he said, um, "I've spoke to your skipper and your uh, your regulating officer on the the ship, and they tell me that you're a good lad. So if you can mop up this cell, I'm going to let you go without a charge." I said, "Oh, thank you, sir," and threw up all over his trousers. <laughs> Um, he punched me, um, and then I and then they threw a mop in and then a bucket of water, and I had to mop the cell and clean it all up before they let me go. And um, I couldn't really; I was I was struggling to stand up. But um, they they got me to the where like the, the jetty was for minesweeper alley, so there's minesweepers out of sight, and ours was at the end. And uh, people were people were stopping work because I was slung between two the call crushers, leading regulators. And I, I did I ham it up a bit. I actually just let me beat my boots drag. So they had to drag me along the jetty. It was, <laughs> it was funny. I'm not exactly proud of it, but it was very funny. And yeah. then put me in my bed. And I I only left the bed to either be sick or, or go for a pee. <laughs> and and um and, and just lay there until such time as I stood up and I was compass mensis. And then one of the boys went up to the skipper and said, he's up. So it was, and I was a leading hand then. LRO Perkins Bridge. So um, he, he told me that I was going to be disciplined, and uh, and that and that was that. So they called a, a disciplinary later that afternoon, and the skipper's in front of me, who went on to become Admiral of the Fleet, and the regulating petty officers beside me, writing the notes down, and the navigation officer is reading the charges out that I was drunk ashore, drunk on board, blah 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 blah. He, to be fair, he fined me the minimum fine he could give me, which was two and a half days' pay. Yeah. I kept my hook. I should have lost my hook, really, but I kept my mm. hook. And then the skipper said, it'd be better for you if you told us who you were drinking with last night. Yeah. So the, the regulating petty officer was the one that suggested the pernos, and the navigating officer was the man that put me into a taxi and brought me back to the ship. And the skipper said, so who was drinking with you last night? I said, I don't remember, sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right thing to do. You don't write. You don't bubble on Yeah, you don't write, yeah. Yeah. So the lesson is, don't drink don't, alcohol. Don't, no, don't tell people that you, you, it's your birthday <laughs> when you're on the show. <laughs> and the, the biggest one I learned from that, seriously, is don't force alcohol onto somebody who's beyond understanding that they've already had too much alcohol. Yeah. That's what my, that's what my shipmates did that day. And, yeah. they regret, and they regret it. Yeah. They, they, they'll, they'll, they'll wallow in the funny story of it, but they, but they could have killed me. And the skipper yeah. told he did something called clear lower deck. So he got all the ship's company on the deck and he he essentially bollocked them from mm. the from 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 high up on the um from the quarter deck and he said, You could have killed this man. Mm. Mm. You, you, that and that you know, that would be on your conscience. The fact he's not dead yeah. is to you. And he, he gave me a wrong lollocking. And we still talk about it whenever we get together. Yeah, talk about that day when because the skipper said he would have died. The day Moss died, <laughs> almost died. Yeah. Like a dog. I don't would died like a dog had any relevance yeah. to it. Yeah, it seemed important for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that that's a great 
point as well and a, a point to end the conversation um i had a, i had a lot of fun talking with you and i think so i just want to give people that um sense of thing like go and choose your adventures you know playing it safe is like you know is it's not for it's not really human thing to do like you, you can't just play it safe like you know we're not chickens we need to go out there we need to take the risk and we need to choose our adventures and yeah um just stay on the line for a little bit uh, longer so i can say goodbye properly um uh, and uh, for everyone listening thank you so much for listening to us and hopefully we'll, uh, i'll catch you soon uh, with some other guest in some other conversation thank you